I was given this Bible a couple of years ago as a gift. There's all kinds of translations of the Bible, and there's all kinds of versions of the Bible that are out there. And this one actually was published and produced by an organization called Renovare, uh, which is headed up by Richard Foster. And uh, I was given this really cool leather-bound version of what is called the Life with God Bible. And I like what is said in the introduction to this special uh, version of the Bible, the Life with God Bible, and it is headed up by this uh, title, Life with God, the Emmanuel Principle. In other words, he's explaining why this Bible is called the Life with God Bible. And this is what is written. The Bible is all about human life with God. It is about how God has made this with God life possible and will bring it to pass. In fact, the name Emmanuel, meaning in Hebrew, God is with us, is the title given to the one and only Redeemer because it refers to God's everlasting intent for human life. Namely, that we should be in every aspect a dwelling place of God. I want to repeat that last sentence about God's everlasting intent for human life. Namely, that we should be in every aspect a dwelling place of God. And you see that this love story called the Bible with lots of stories in it from beginning to end is about that movement of God to be a dwelling among us. First book of the Bible is Genesis. First book of the Bible, in the first couple of chapters, we have the Garden of Eden, and we hear in those opening chapters this lovely description in Genesis 3, verse 8, how the Lord God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve there. It is this lovely picture of God in their midst, dwelling with. And then the very last book of the Bible is what? Revelation. And then the last chapters of the Bible, we see this incredible metaphor talking about the whole conclusion of of creation, conclusion of history. You've got this metaphor of a bride, God coming down like a bride out of heaven. And I want to read these verses to you. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. God himself will be with them. So from beginning to end, you got this with us, God with us life, this principle that we see at work. And then right in the middle of the Bible, we have the Gospels, and the fourth Gospel writer is the Gospel of John. We're going to be reading out of that school of literature in the New Testament, but I want you to think for just a moment about John and how he was known. John, and this is kind of not fair because this is by his own self-description, he is the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And as far as we know, he's the only one that told us that fact. He's the one that's pictured, interestingly enough, if you see on the right-hand side of, of Jesus here, the one that in the Da Vinci Code was described as one that looks very much like a woman. Uh, but that would be John sitting closest to Jesus. 
And you do have in the Gospel of John very unique and important descriptions of how God is with us. The incarnation, the opening of the Gospel of John, and the Word became flesh. And you have this description of the Trinity in the Gospel of John. So you see this intimacy, this very close relationship of love that God has in mind with us. So that's the school we are in as we go once again into these verses that you already heard at the beginning of our worship service from 1 John chapter 1, the first seven verses. Let's pray, and let's listen to God's word. God with us, we do lift our hearts to you and pray that you would get our attention this morning in a way that helps us know and believe and receive the love that you have for us, the fullness of it. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Listen to God's word to you, 1 John 1, first seven verses. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we have seen it and testify to it, and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The gift of God's word. Thanks be to God. So he's practically tripping over himself, this writer, trying to describe this tangible, direct experience of the living God. What we've seen, what we've heard, what we've touched, what has been revealed, what has been made known to us. It's not way out there. This is something that's really, really near and dear and life-changing, and they can't but speak of what they've seen and heard and touched. Very intimate, very close. There's been a very tender thing going on in my family, my extended family, that goes all the way back to the East Coast in Maryland, which is where I spent the first eight years of my life living on my grandfather's farm. And on the other hill, on the opposite side of where my family lived, uh, is where my dad's sister, Mary, Aunt Mary, lived. And she and her husband and her four daughters, my cousins, and that's the way I grew up, was playing with them and hanging out at their house on this farm in Maryland. Well, amazingly, Aunt Mary remained on that farm because of her daughter and her daughter's husband, and they made a way to build an extension on the house so that into her 90s and at age 94, she died three weeks ago in her home. I was talking to Danny, one of the ones living there, who made it possible for her to die in her home. This is a woman of faith. This is a woman who experienced the very thing that is being described in 1 John 1. 
And my, my cousin's husband, Danny, was telling me, uh, he said it was just amazing because as she uh, moved toward her final weeks of life, she got more confused, um, more out of it. She didn't really recognize family members. She didn't know his name. Sometimes she would look at him weird. And she said it, he said in all that, her relationship with the Lord never missed a beat. She would recite scriptures, and he said, not short ones, long ones. She would sing a hymn, not just one verse, but the second verse, and then the third verse, and then the fourth verse, all the verses. And because they were concerned and wanted to know how she was doing through the night, they put a cam video in her rooms that could span the room, and they just had to hit the mouse on their computer, and they could see how she was doing and hear what she was doing. And so this is one of those things that, you know, what are you doing when nobody's watching? What my Aunt Mary was doing when nobody was watching, she'd be lying on her bed with her arms up, praising God and singing. And even though she couldn't recognize her family members, she was naming them all by name and their husbands and praying for every single one of them. She was singing songs, praising God. And my, my cousin's husband, Danny, said it was about as good as it could be. Not only was it so clear that she loved the Lord, this is the sentence he said that really, really touched me and was striking to me. He said, it was clear that he loved her too. Because even as she was dying and hospice doesn't usually come in in the middle of the night, this nurse came in at 10 o'clock and was at her bedside and helping her die well with the family, a woman of faith. And he talked about the various things that made it so clear that Jesus loved her too. That was striking to me. Well, some in my family could say, oh, well, that's Aunt Mary. She was always very emotional. She was always very um, kind of insecure and struggled, and of course she had this relationship with God. But how striking it was at our great getaway weekend to have this professor from San Francisco Theological Seminary, who's been studying and teaching systematic theology for 35 years. He grew up atheist. He came to Christ through young life. He heard about this little booklet, My Heart, Christ's Home. It was given to him when he was just a young adult. And he read this, this booklet by Robert Munger, and this is our series that we are right in the middle of. And he said, as he talked about this booklet, booklet, this description of our life described by John as a a vine where Jesus wants to abide in us and, and us abide in him, that Jesus wants to dwell in us, Jesus wants to be our friend, that this description of, of thinking of ourselves and our lives as a, as a house, this metaphor of inviting Jesus into our house and all the conversations that are going on, As we respond to that description in Revelation 3.20, Jesus saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, knocking politely, waiting for the invitation. If anyone opens the door, I will come in, and I will live with you and eat with you. He said in all of his studies, 35 years of systematic theology, this is the closest to describing what it's all about. We began with the study Last Sunday, it was about our appetites, the dining room, which tend to drive our life. But I would say that it's the living room that really should drive 
our relationship with God. I've asked Madeline to come and read that particular section called The Living Room to you. From the dining room, we walked into the living room. This room was intimate and comfortable. I liked it. It had a fireplace, overstuffed chairs, a sofa, and a quiet atmosphere. He said, this is indeed a delightful room. Let us come here often. It is secluded and quiet, and we can fellowship together. Well, as a young Christian, I was thrilled. I couldn't think of anything I would rather do than have a few minutes with Christ in close companionship. He promised, I will be here early every morning. Meet me here, and we will start the day together. So morning after morning, I would come downstairs to the living room. He would take a book of the Bible from the case. We would open it and read it together. He would unfold to me the wonder of God's saving truths. My heart sang as he shared the love and grace he had toward me. These were wonderful times. However, little by little, under the pressure of many responsibilities, this time began to be shortened. Why, I'm not sure. I thought I was too busy to spend regular time with Christ. It wasn't intentional, you understand. It just happened that way. Finally, not only was the time shortened, but I began to miss days now and then. Urgent matters would crowd out the quiet times of conversation with Jesus. I remember one morning rushing downstairs, eager to be on my way. I passed the living room and noticed that the door was open. Looking in, I saw a fire in the fireplace and Jesus was sitting there. Suddenly, in dismay, I thought to myself, He is my guest. I invited him into my heart. He has come as my savior and friend, and yet I am neglecting him. I stopped, turned, and hesitantly went in. With downcast glance, I said, Master, forgive me. Have you been here all these mornings? Yes, he said. I told you that I would be here every morning to meet with you. Remember, I love you. I have redeemed you at great cost. I value your friendship. Even if you cannot keep the quiet time for yourself, do it for me. The, Christ, the truth that Christ desires my friendship, that he wants me to be with him and waits for me, has done more to transform my quiet time with God than any other single fact. Don't let Christ wait alone in the living room of your heart, but every day find time when, with your Bible and in prayer, you may be together with him. Thank you. Once again, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is saying, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. This living room, this Emmanuel principle, God with us, and it was so interesting to hear Greg Love say how important that quiet time, that's a word that comes out of my younger days and his younger days, but a time where you are actually setting a carving out a time to be with God in scripture, in prayer, because you value that time and even more so because Jesus values that time. You know, Session is reading a book right now called Mansions of the Heart. By It's called um, Exploring the Seven Stages of Spiritual Growth by R. Thomas Ashbrook. 
And the reason, one of the reasons we're reading this, one of the big reasons actually is because we want to deepen our own relationship with God as we are leading the church, the decision makers of the church. But another reason is that we really are asking the question, what is the goal of the spiritual life? And Tom Ashbrook's answer is that the goal of the spiritual life is our love relationship with God. And in the second chapter, he goes into those other ways that we would tend to answer that question. What is the goal of our relationship with God? And I want to go through four of the ones that he um, talks about in chapter two. He actually calls them myths. But one of those goals that is very common for us to, uh, it's a way for us to think about the goal of our relationship with God is what he calls the holiness goal. That God's intention is for us to be transformed and the word is sanctified so that we are no longer living sinful lives and self-centered lives, but we are living lives that look more and more like God's character, more and more like Jesus Christ. And certainly that is important in this church, isn't it? as we are nurturing community servants inspired by Jesus, that we want to have our lives aligned with the way of Jesus. So that's one way of naming a goal of the spiritual life. Another goal that is very commonly understood for our relationship with God is what he calls the usefulness goal. That we are to be engaged in ministry. We are called to be witnesses, as we heard in 1 John 1. We are called to be working for justice issues, to be compassionate, to be faithful disciples, to be doing the work of ministry. This church runs because people are doing the work of ministry. The associate pastor search committee, the children's ministry team, the community outreach team, the deacons, the elders, all of you. You are doing the work of ministry. You are doing something productive. That would be the usefulness goal. Another goal he names as a possibility for what, uh, what our whole relationship with God is about is what he calls the wholeness goal, the personal wholeness goal, so that we can be whole people. God wants to make us whole in body, in mind, in our relationships, spiritually, with all the dysfunction, learning how to be healthy in the way we relate to one another. So healthy internally, healthy in systems, healthy in relationships. Another goal he describes is the new understanding of God goal. So that if you have a correct way of thinking, if you have a correct theology, if you understand and know scripture and what God wants us to do, then automatically your life will be aligned with God's will, that that is a goal. And for those of us from the Protestant Reformation, Presbyterians, we are big on education and big on preaching and big on correct theology. Maybe it's a reason that just about every time I preach, you see books, 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 books. So I'm just curious, as you hear those four possible goals for our relationship with God, which one either were you trained to think about as the goal of our spiritual life, or the one that even now you're realizing this is the way you've always thought and you still think is the goal of our our relationship with God? How many would say the holiness goal, that we're changed and transformed and sanctified to be more like who God is? Okay. How many would say the usefulness goal, that we are to be living out and really be the servants of God in the world? How many would say the personal wholeness goal, that we are to experience God's shalom in all ways? 
How many would say the new understanding, the understanding and correct understanding of God? Yeah. So these are all very important parts of what it means to be in relationship with God. And I want to read to you what Tom Ashbrook wrote. He said this, my problem was that I had not yet realized that God's goal for my life was simply a love relationship with him. Now that can sound very syrupy, but he goes on to explain how everything else we just named flows out of a deepening love relationship with God, a restored and deepening love relationship with God. And he goes on, he writes, It is clear in Scripture that God's ultimate goal for your life is for you to live fully and freely in his love and to respond by loving him as well. He has no ulterior motives. He just wants you to be his son, his daughter, his friend, his co-worker in love. Interesting. It's living out of the living room. But I think there's very, something very important about that living room that we have to hear. Brennan Manning, an alcoholic priest, he died not long ago, about a year ago. He's written several books, and they all are some of the most powerful writing I've heard about grace and about God's love because this man failed. And he really needed to experience the grace of God in his life. And he did. So he was able to speak on it passionately and write about it passionately. And he remembers very clearly a certain mentor to him, a man who really had a big impact on his faith and his life, a monk. And one day he was talking with this man and just affirming him up and down for his life of faith for his life of service, for his life of teaching, for the influence he'd had in Brennan Manning's life. And as this man listened to Brennan thank him and affirm him for his closeness with Jesus Christ and the way he loved Jesus, this monk smiled slowly and he said, yes, God is very fond of me. He flipped it. And instead of making it about his productivity, his servanthood, his sanctification, him bearing fruit, his correct teaching, he flipped it and made it first of all, go back over here, and made it first of all about God's love and fondness for him. God is very fond of you. Is God more fond of John, the beloved disciple, than you? Is God more fond of my Aunt Mary than you? Is God more fond of Greg Love because he's such a great teacher than you? Is God more fond of those that you look up to because they seem to have their life together and they seem to be a model of faith, more fond of them than you? The answer is no. God is very fond of you. No ulterior motives. 
not dependent on any outcomes. God is very fond of you and loves time with you and loves being with you and values the friendship and the relationship just for the friendship and the relationship. So as it says in the booklet, that last paragraph, of course I can't find it now, The truth that Christ desires my companionship, that he wants me to be with him and waits for me, has done more to transform my quiet time with God than any other single fact. Don't let Christ wait alone in the living room of your heart. But every day find time when with your Bible and in prayer you may be together with him. He's just waiting for the invitation to come in. He's just waiting for you to take the time. This is really hard in our culture. And I'd be curious what you have found works for you. I want you to email me this week. What helps you spend time with God every day? Just to be with God, knowing that God is very fond of you. To spend time to listen, to pray, to be with Email that to me, and I'll share it with everybody else, okay? Because we need help. We need help to know this, and we need help to live in this. Jesus in us and us in Jesus every day. Let's pray. Jesus, we are in awe Truly you, the maker of all things, even notice us, much less love us the way you do. We praise you that you have made all things in love and for love. And may that truth land in our hearts and lives in a way that we trust and lean in and that you become the reference point for all of our living. In Jesus' name. Amen.